Welcome to the M3 Bear Essentials Podcast. My name is Malcolm Travers. Each Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, I host a YouTube live broadcast and invite the editors and contributors of Mail Media Mind to present a topic of their choosing. We discuss politics, social issues, especially those facing the black and LGBT communities, entertainment, mental health, sexuality, and relationships, or whatever makes the news or makes us mad. View the show recording live to ask questions or comment in the chat. Subscribe to M3 on YouTube to get a notification when we go live. You can find links to our YouTube page and other social media platforms at mailmediamind.com. Now, enjoy the show. And we are live. It is Sunday, February 12th, 2017, and welcome to the M3 Sunday Hangout. I'll be your host, Malcolm Travers. Every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we meet to discuss the current events of the week and to give our unique perspectives on the world. As always, we need your uh, feedback to make this an interactive form of entertainment. You can visit to mailmediamind.com. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and you'll get a, a notification when we go live. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mailmediamind. Uh, you can subscribe there to also get the link. Um, let me introduce the panelists today. Um, start with Xavier, who is joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. What's going on, man? Hey, how is everybody? I am pretty good. Pretty good. And um, we also have Lonnie Richardson is joining us also from Atlanta. What's going on? Hey, guys. Hey, what's up? And we have Derek Jones joining us from New York. What's going on, Derek? Good Sunday, everyone. Yes, yes. And I, I said this to all of you before we got started. Like, I've been ru- ripping and running this week, so excuse me if I'm uh, a little exhausted. But uh, we got uh, plenty of topics to discuss. I'm also going to ask the panelists if they have a topic that they would like to discuss. Um, I haven't really had too much pushback on the fact that I'm discussing politics so much because I guess that is what's dominating my mind <laughs> over the past three weeks since. I don't think it's just your mind. Um, We had a snowstorm here in um, the uh, tri-state area on the East Coast this week. It's the first time that I was able to watch the local news for hours on end and not see about politics because it was all about the snow. And, you know, I would like to actually talk a little bit about disaster recovery because, um, you know, we had storms that hit us uh, last month around this time. And, yeah, with no one listening you know, to the president. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting, the, the recovery and, you know, the role of FEMA um, that happened in our, our local community. And um, I don't know, I, I like to discuss some of those I guess the thing about that to me was that when um, during the Obama administration, when there was a disaster, they expected him to be on the ground and doing something about it. Same thing when there was... They expected him to be on the ground and they expected him to be turning back the the tides of time. They expected him to be on the ground because, remember, we, we actually discussed it and we were saying that he would be more in the way than he would be any kind of help if he was on the ground yes. in that scenario. Yeah. And then when um, Bush had uh, Katrina, he, 
that was the same thing. People were mad that Bush didn't even show up or that he flew overhead at some point, but really didn't do anything. But here it is. We've been having some of the craziest winter storm weather, winter systems that we've seen in this country in, in forever. Yeah. And nobody said anything about the expectation of what Trump is supposed to do in these cases. Yeah. I was going to say the, the recovery here was incredibly slow because um, um, more than, I think, 10,000 people were without power for more than two weeks. That's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And by the time they showed up, another tornado hit. You know, so I guess the recovery for this, the secondary damage was much quicker because FEMA was already here for the first storm. But I'm just saying, like, if we didn't have that first storm, the second one was, like, much worse for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I don't know what the recovery would have been. It was crazy. I don't know. It was just bad all around. Um and I think one of the things that it taught me was how important your local government is in that recovery process. Uh, for one, they're the ones who have to initiate FEMA coming in. And part of that means they have somewhat control over your budget for the next year or so, which is some of the, like, the politics involved with it. But they basically take over any um, costs that you might have for recovery, you know, of a lower magnitude. And, you know, they have a budget. And they're like, basically, if we accept FEMA right away, then we never get to spend money again for the rest of this year. You know, like they take the entire budget that we had set aside. And part of the politics of it was they were near the beginning of the fiscal year. And they had things they wanted to do outside of the storm recovery that they wouldn't get to do otherwise. Because that's the way FEMA works. <laughs> you, know? uh, you have to have literally no budget uh, and give it all over to them. So, I don't know. And the decisions that the local government makes is a lot to do with how well the recovery goes because our local government didn't want to accept FEMA right away. They wanted to see if they could you know, manage it without any help. Um, but two weeks with people on without power for two weeks means yeah. you didn't handle it very well. No, they didn't. And it was really, really bad. Um, so I don't know. I gave, it gave me a little bit more perspective on, you know, when we talk about disaster recovery and so forth, that, you know, a lot of how fast FEMA responds is due to local governments. And I remember that sort of argument being made, you know, back in the discussions about, you know, the Katrina recovery and so forth. And that was one of the arguments that Republicans were making. I didn't agree with it then. I don't agree with it now because I think it was a cop out. But um, I think they used it because it's the truth. You know, a lot of times the local government does have a lot to do with how fast, you know, FEMA is able to get there. Um, you know, and I guess as we were talking before, like we live in a sort of uh, fact free political environment. People can just make up shit. And they know like 30% of the people are just going to believe it because they have an R behind their name, you know. So you can just say whatever. <laughs> there's, a, there's a point at which in political speaking, you know, people have their own facts. You know, like you can't really have a substantive discussion about most things because you can't even agree on what the facts are. Like if you were having a discussion about Obamacare and, you know, you know, something like a third of the country doesn't even know that Obamacare is the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> so there's that leap to jump. And then you have to deal with the fact that 
you know, when you talk about the programs that they're implementing, you know, they don't agree on the effect that those, you know, policies have. Um, so anyway, that was my first thing was I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the storm. I don't know if um, Derek, you had anything about, you know, what you've seen the recovery of the storms that happened this past we, week. Our storms were bad, but they weren't, they weren't bad like you all had. I mean, weather was jacked up. They shut the schools down, um, you know, but we, but, but we didn't have it. We didn't have anything that we weren't used to having. Yeah. Had one this year and, and the one we had, like, it was 70 degrees the day before. Yeah. And then the temperature dropped like 35 degrees, 35, mm -hmm. 40 degrees. And then it was the frozen fucking tundra outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've had that sort of experience too. And I think that was kind of what causes these severe storms is the, I guess what they call it, the El Nino that's out in the Gulf, you know, hitting, yeah. hitting Arctic air that's coming down causes these terrible storms. You know, so yeah, one day it's 20, the next day it's 80. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it did my own personal experience gave me some insight into, you know, a little bit of the conversations about FEMA and um, recovery. But I actually have plenty of more topics. This actually had to do with state government. I'm supposed to be taking a class on natural disasters and responses. At the end of the right. month, actually. Cool. So, what is your gonna be do? What do you think like is covered in those sorts of um, courses? Well, you have to. Well, they talk about it in reference to what is your role in in those types of incidences. So, are you yeah. a first responder? Are you an aftercare person? Follow. What is your? Are you security? Because you know that's an issue. All of those things. So it depends on what your role is in this type of incident. So. I would be a person, at uh, one point, they were offering money. I didn't take it because I didn't want to do this, but they were offering money for people who, for, for a lot of us who are therapists, to go out into some of these areas that have been impacted and offer therapies for these people. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's a trauma for a lot of people. Some people have lost family. Some people just, you know, they lost their homes and things like that. And so it's a very traumatic experience. And so they were having us go out. Um, and if you had any kind of medical training, then they also wanted you also. So yeah. uh, our role would primarily be, uh, so my role primarily would be first responder, um, yeah. kind of a person. And so I would be there from start to finish of this type of project, helping the families, uh, trying to help people get to safety, helping them with the trauma things, uh, figuring out the, safe, the safest way to manage mass numbers of people. Yeah, because mm -hmm. you know, like we've learned, um, say from Katrina, you putting everybody in the um, it was not the best idea. Not at all. Uh, it can not a good idea. And whoever thought put it up, I don't. I don't know even know where they got that kind of thinking from. So right. figuring out all of those types of you things. You do with horses uh, when um, worm pits that you put them all in the barn together. No, you don't. You let them and, go. You turn them out the barn. No. Oh. When there's a storm coming through, you know, they, people turn the horses loose because horses are animals. They'll know what to do. They'll know to go to higher ground. I'm serious. And yeah. they their own self-preservation instincts. They know to go to higher ground. 
if you trap them in the barn and the barn collapses, it's going to kill every horse in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's pretty um, important. And it's funny in some of the um, stories that I was reading about uh, storm recovery, like one of the important parts of getting counseling and therapists in the area is because a lot of people who volunteer to help after the storm are people who are affected by the storm. You know, and the more right. yeah, more help you give to people, the more they help contribute to the recovery effort. You know, a lot of times the volunteers out there helping other people are the fact that they're lives have been turned upside down and they're sitting in a shelter somewhere, you know, you might as well be out volunteering because they're going to, you know, pay for your transportation and food, you know, and it's better than being stuck in a shelter. Um, and then, um, let me see, 9-11, I was still in school during this one, but yeah. they talked about how bad it was for 9-11 for the people who were out there, the, the, the rescuers and things like that. A lot of them ended up suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and a, and a lot of other uh, depression and that just them, but they found out that the dog suffered it too because at one point, every time they would, you know, pull somebody out, the person wasn't living. Yeah. Um, and so that brought them down. So they had to get yeah. a lot of therapists and go out there and, you know, help with those people. And, you know, it's, even though it's their job to do these types of things and they're used to it, they weren't used to it on that magnitude. Right. Um, right. You know, every time you pulled out a body, it, it was just that. And sometimes it was, you know, everything from men. You were in body security. recovery, you were rescuing people. Body recovery recovery more earlier than what we have seen in natural disasters before. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I remember there was actually um, a person, I guess a story of one of the, one of the um, people who worked at the airport who basically sold the tickets to those who, uh, you know, flew the planes, you know, he just happened to be the person who booked their ticket and was dealing with issues like not even having ever confronted a dead body. <laughs> was wrecked by the fact that he felt somehow responsible, you know, uh, just because he was in the random bureaucracy that was American Airlines, you know. But um, anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I think that was definitely enlightening as far as, um, you know, talking about how recoveries go, because there was like a host of issues and I didn't get a chance to take notes on it as I was listening to some of the, um, the stories from my local news. Uh, with people, you know, and, you know, recognizing the long-term effects of natural disasters on a, on a community and sort of thinking about, like, how the cohesiveness of a community has to, um, to deal with how well you can recover. It's not just a lot of the government, but, like, if the people in a city have just a higher distrust of each other, you know, you're less likely to get volunteers and help or, you know, because there are communities like that, that, you know, whatever strife that was happening before the storm continues through it and slows the recovery process. So, um, so there's that angle as well. But no, I had plenty of other topics. If uh, anyone else had one they want to contribute, uh, feel free to just jump in. <laughs> um, but one I actually had from a state government level, and this had to do with a, a representative from Hawaii. Uh, I think she was the minority leader in the state house of representatives there, who basically joined the Women's March, I guess, right after the Trump inauguration, um, and was fired as a speaker of the house of representatives there. And um, 
don't know. It was an interesting, interesting discussion because, I mean, she does oppose. <laughs> she oppose, She opposes the Republican Party's, you know, head of the Republican Party, Donald Trump. Which, I mean, a lot of Republicans do, but they don't have leadership positions <laughs> in the state houses in which, you know. So I guess the point I was just thinking about was when we had these discussions about who's responsible for, you know, Donald Trump's ascendancy to the presidency, I think we often leave out the Republican Party <laughs> as one of the culprits of it, you know. Uh, you often talk about, like, Hillary should have ran a better campaign or, you know, people shouldn't have voted for third parties or whatever, but, you know, blame the voters who voted for him, sure. But what about the Republican Party itself? Because um, like I was saying before, I guess in both parties, they're just partisans. Uh, you know, about 30% um, of people just vote party line, uh, either Republican or Democrat. And whoever the nominee is, they're going to vote for him. They'll make up any excuse, whatever. But you know, they might not even like it. They might come up with, you know, reasoning behind it. You know, it's like, well, he doesn't really mean that. He doesn't, you know, it's just to get the crowds or whatever. They'll say anything to believe it because they are hardcore Republicans. They're Republicans because they're not Democrats. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they want to be opposed to the Democrats and Republicans are you know, the best option for that. So... Where's the blame for the Republican Party for nominating this douchebag? <laughs> no one ever talks about that, like especially going down ballot and all the people who are now in, you know in Congress making excuses for his you know his cabinet picks and his policies and you know trying to dance around. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. I don't because, know like, because they're being called out left and right. I mean, the, there was the there was the one. Uh, I think he's a senator. Okay. Who tried to have the town hall meeting and got run literally run off the stage? <laughs> yeah, I did see that. You know, I think Republicans are being held to being held to task. Their feet are being held to the fire much greater than ever been in in the history I can remember. Um, for the first time, it's the way it's supposed to be, where politicians are actually afraid of their constituents. You know, when you got yeah. to take the phone off the hook, when you dodge at motherfuckers at the airport, when you are dodging your constituents like your constituents dodge bill collectors. <laughs> yeah, they're aren't they actually on um, recess right now? The Congress. Are they on recess? I, th I thought they were still in the midst of confirming I think after this this weekend they went on on uh, recess for this week. The, I think they are. And they got and they got home and were met with angry mobs that they tried to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can blame them for Trump though. I think you have to blame the people for Trump because they're the ones who voted him in. That's now true. I blame them for letting him do some of the stuff that he's done subsequently since then, like confirming these people because you know you just shouldn't have confirmed them, and then he had to go pick somebody else. That's all he, it would have been done to it, and your constituents wouldn't be mad with you. But some of these people right. that you all confirmed just because they're your presidential pick, there's no purpose of a confirmation hearing. You're just going to confirm them automatically just because he picked them. 
Yeah. Well, they have to have the confirmation hearing because the Democrats aren't, you know, the, the, the Democrats aren't voting for these people. No. And the Democrats are not voting for these people, and the Republicans know they shouldn't be voting for these people. Yeah. I agree with you. And yeah, so I mean, that's yeah. why they're getting booed off the stages and so forth. Yeah, I think also there's a there's been a collective effort to do just that. I would definitely support it myself. Just you know, your representative right now might be on recess holding a town hall meeting. You know, um, I, I I do think that's a legitimate thing to go. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do as a citizen. I, I think a lot of times people we're talking about the immigration ban and the, you know, you know, I guess there that fight between. Uh, you know, the tweets that Donald Trump has been making about um, some of the rulings against his uh, executive actions, kind of insulting, like standard Trumpian shit, you know, but I don't know. They're talking about separation of powers and checks on powers and everything else, but I don't know if ever people always center on the people themselves as their responsibility to hold government accountable, you know. But it is your responsibility to hold government accountable. And for the first mm. time in a long time, that's actually working. And yeah. Try to ignore the people marching outside, but there has been a march every, damn near every day since this man took office. Yeah. And it's not just and, and, and it's not just against because now it is becoming against the party. Again, when your Republican representative has to duck and dodge you like you owe him money. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. I hope that translates into something in the 2018 elections. I do. It needs to. I mean, people, yeah. I, I, I think we may be getting to a point where people are going to stop voting down a straight party line because it's no longer just simple black and white options anymore. Yeah, but I think there's still like a huge set of Republicans who, I don't know, feel like they're getting what they asked for from Trump. And from the Republicans for that matter, like they wanted to repeal Obamacare. You know, that was like one of their first things. I mean, the, the wall is crazy, but it was a campaign. That repeal, let me tell you, that repeal Obamacare thing is absolutely ludicrous and i mean if if you want to talk about how big and and encompassing it is yes you know but again republicans have been talking about repealing obamacare for six years we're going to come up with something better we're going to do something better but you've had six years you've not only had six years but you've had six years where the democrats have been saying okay sit down at the table with us we'll work something out and the republicans aren't doing that yeah you're no longer making this about the people you are making this about you yeah now the funny thing is of course if they they come up with something worse than obamacare they're going to pay a huge political price for that. I mean, there's no doubt. Um, if they, you know, if they actually repeal Obamacare, they really do have to come up with an alternative. Do they? If they want to stay in power. Yeah, they do. If they want to stay in power, they do. They have to come up with something. I don't think they will. You know, I mean, that's both heartening and discouraging at the same time. <laughs> They won't come up with a better option, I don't think. So what if they just come up with the same idea but just put it in a different package? Yeah. 
maybe that's I, they, what they came out with what they're going to change it with. I mean, there was one proposal for a replacement that sounds reasonable. I don't know if it's as good or worse, but it's not awful. And that was what they call um, risk pools. So, I mean, part of the problem with our healthcare system is that somewhere around 5% of patients make up 50% of the costs of across. Like there's some people who are just really, really sick and really, really expensive to take care of. Um, if you remove those people from the insurance market and put them on something like Medicare, you know, just remove those people and pay for their health care, the health care costs of the rest of the pool will be much lower. And, you know, it's, it's almost, it's a little elementary. I mean, it's almost too simple a solution because obviously you got to pay a lot of medical bills <laughs> through Medicare that will make Medicare way more expensive, you know, but that's all a very simple solution that you could do. Of course, how do you pay for that? Cause that's going to cost a shit ton of money, but at I least they're talking. I, dis- I, I disagree. You know how to make mm. this better mm. is to open up Medicare as an option. Because the problem is all of the options are with companies that are looking to make a profit. That's kind of what they're doing with that, though. I mean, it's, it's just that. You can't put health care and profitability in the same column. Yeah. That's kind of what that proposal is, though. It's basically saying, like, if your medical bills are so expensive that you're... But um, I'm not talking about your medical bills being so expensive that you have to be switched over. I'm talking about Medicare as an option instead of Blue Cross Blue Shield. Well, I can take Blue Cross Blue Shield or I can take uh, uh, Health First or I can take Medicare. Well, Medicare is the cheapest and I'll get the most out of that. Now, I think that's exactly what the next Democrat should do. Absolutely. But I'm saying this is... But that's what Obama tried to do. And and what he brought what he brought to the table and what got passed were not the same things. Right, that's true. And he still had a very recalcitrant Congress to deal with. Yes. Because, so, I mean, you got to keep in mind now, insurance ain't just sitting around not just letting all this happen. They have very powerful lobbyists. Very powerful lobbyists. And they have a lot of money thrown into things like this. And so, yeah, Absolutely. Obama brought a great idea he brought the marketplace and you were going to have an option and you picked out of the best of the options but then the doctors and the lobbyists and the insurance companies then they said well if i accept this kind of insurance for patients i'm only getting pay x these fewer dollars to see these patients and do the same service if i stay with blue cross and blue shield and whatever other insurance panels i'm already on more money, see less patients. And so that's what started, that's what happened. And so a lot of doctors are saying, oh, no, I don't take patients with those with those insurance centers. And, and so yeah, you, you basically have to, because because insurance and healthcare and, that, and, the, and the switch up of the two is now all, all about the profit, gives less than a damn about you getting healthy, which is something somebody right. else has to teach me is that is this whole game ain't about you getting better. It's about profitability. 
create an entirely different healthcare system simply for the high cost individuals. And those of us that are at cost, those who have basic things going on with us, you know, go in for regular doctor's visits once a year and might have a minor issue going on in between, those of us on in that category stay in a regular healthcare plan and everybody else is in a whole different healthcare system altogether. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's a, that's the risk pools theory of the Republicans. That's probably the best plan we could get out of a Republican administration. And also to try what Xavier was saying yeah. is that <clears throat> I work in healthcare and I work in their uh, Medicare Advantage program. Um, a lot of doctors and hospitals don't want to deal with patients that have Medicare because there's a strict criteria that they have to meet. And if they do not meet that criteria, they do not get paid. And a lot of hospitals and providers get really pissed off because they just, let's say they forgot to do an authorization prior to the member admitting because the member had a heart attack. They can be denied payment because they forgot to let us know that the member admitted into the facility. So um, to chime into what Xavier said is that Medicare sometimes is not the best option. And that's one of the reasons why doctors and hospitals choose not to deal with Medicare. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting reality of the situation, too, that, um, you know, it's complicated, right? Like healthcare situation It's that's one of the reasons I was saying, like, it's you know, even that has super huge loopholes, like you were saying about the fact that, you know, the people who are in these high risk pools may not get care because that, you know, for whatever reason, people don't want to accept that. You know? So, I mean, that's a real possibility that could happen. Um, anyway, I don't know how we got, <laughs> we got on the healthcare discussion, but uh, I think that we discussed the, um, the trial of the, uh, what is it? The, the Bundy brothers and their father in Nevada yet. I, don't know. I know we kind of, okay. So I guess there's, I don't know if you remember back in 2012, I guess there was these cattle ranchers in Nevada who um, basically were grazing on public land and um, they were warned not to, you know, cause they yeah, national wildlife refuges and so forth. But these ranchers, you know, were, had their cattle on public land and the feds came to go get the cattle and um, the Bundy's, you know, had this huge sort of militia on their property and they came out and kicked the government agents off their property. Like, you know, like how that would happen in a movie or some shit. I don't know. I've never seen this. That, it seems crazy to me that that is what happened, but it did. Um, and they were never at that point, they weren't arrested. I mean, nothing happened. Uh, that was, what, four or five years ago? Um, I guess a year later, the, the sons had, I don't know, taken over this government building in, was it uh, Oregon? I think it was. And they were put on trial and acquitted, ultimately, because uh, that was what made the news. Um, the whole thing, the standoff on their farm wasn't really the new big news item, but uh, you know this the standoff they had in Oregon, they were put on trial. They had, um, you know, they were acquitted because basically they claimed that they were protesting. <laughs> basically, 
They said they they had no intention of harming any federal agents or whatever, but they were protesting what had happened on their father's farm. This was the the agency that came to their farm a year before, um, and they were acquitted. Um, there's, however, in a couple of weeks, they're going to be put on trial in Nevada for the original thing that prompted the thing in Oregon. Um, and they'll be acquitted there too. Yeah, yeah, it's a good possibility. I mean, that was. They had an interview with the the prosecutor on the case and just saying, like, uh, it's a tough case. I mean, like, they can, um, I mean, they were acquitted already. They're just saying that, I don't know, anyone have any other opinion on it? <laughs> so just move on. <laughs> like, they don't get is, it, is it a tough case? You, 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 you chase federal law enforcement at with weapons. Yeah, it's a tough case because normally in a situation like that, if you drew down on some federal law enforcement people, they were going to draw down on you, you're going to be in a body bag. So <laughs> that's why it's a tough case because normally you wouldn't be having a case. Normally, right. you know, because you didn't walk away. So they don't have to worry about prosecuting you. So that's, yeah. that's one of the problems that, that I feel like they're having with this. Um, and then, you know, I, I think ultimately they don't want to prosecute. I, I feel like they yeah. don't because it's against the law anyway to pull a gun on a federal official that is exercising the law. That's already against right. the law. So it's a thing of they may can't get them on one thing, but if they change what they were charging them, they can get them on that. Yeah. I think that it's a tough case because of where you have to try it and the people who basically support them because they have plenty of supporters. They may have, okay, well, then what you do is you I mean, have like, to relocate the uh, trial so that you can get a jury pool that is going to be unbiased. That's not the, yeah. yes. I mean, again, these are That's things that people know. Case. Exactly. These are things people know. That's exactly <laughs> what they did in the OJ case. Yeah. They knew that where it had happened, they were going to have too many black people. <laughs> somewhere where they felt that they could do a little better. <laughs> yeah. So that's what apparently, yeah. from what I hear, happens to a lot of cases. A lot of the cases in LA. When they're high profile, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I do want to talk about immigration a little bit. Um, there was a, a couple of news stories uh, this week dealing with immigration, one dealing with sanctuary cities and another with refugees, uh, Syrian refugees, for example. I mean, this almost sounds cartoonish, but nearly a thousand Syrian refugees have illegally entered Canada from the United States since uh, the president has taken uh, office. And I mean, it seems like a cartoon thing to say, but it's happening. Actually, like two or three people died of hypothermia because they're trying to cross into Canada. Because uh, they're afraid of what, you know, the Trump administration is about to do. And lo and behold, ICE, I guess the immigration, whatever that stands for, <laughs> immigration enforcement agency that has been rounding up, you know, undocumented people in seven major cities, all of which happen to be sanctuary cities. You know, um, and it's not unusual for ICE to do such raids, actually. You know, 
Obama actually has one of the largest records for deportation due to their raids in the past eight years. But the difference is they, they're rounding up their, their parameters are much wider. So for instance, there was a case, I believe it was in Missouri or Texas, Texas. Um, it was basically a, um, so they, I guess they were targeting someone who was driving a car. They were following him. They got him to a certain intersection and arrested him. They also arrested the passenger who was in the car, who also happened to be undocumented, but was not the target of the raid. And typically, uh, under previous policies, um, they would let him go or arrest him for whatever crime he may have committed with the person in the car. Um, but no, they, they're deporting the passenger as well. And that's just like a typical thing that's happening over the past week, I believe. Because uh, I guess uh, President Trump actually did sign an executive order broadening ICE's, uh, you know, authority in that regard. They're basically just doing what the president said to do. So, you know, that's happening. And because of that, people will, are, are fleeing the country into Canada. So now Canadian border officials are having issues <laughs> with people running out of our country. Uh, and I say that's just, that's like a, a punchline to a joke, but it's happening. Now, you know these, are, these are refugees, right? That yes. are running. So yeah. they are actually in the country legally. They are, yes. Okay. We expected, I believe, 50,000 Syrian refugees over the past four years. Right. Um, so, yeah. So there are, yeah. And 1,000 in the past week have fled over to Canada. So, like, what? I don't know. I can't do percentages that fast. <laughs> but, yeah, it's happening. I just said it sounds comical. Um, no, it doesn't. That's the problem. It doesn't sound comical. There's nothing well, funny about that shit at all. It makes perfect sense. If I was a Syrian refugee, I too would be looking for an exit strategy. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I felt like it would be a punchline in a stand-up routine. You know, about what... There is, what, no, uh, look, there is no more punchlines in stand-up routines when it comes to shit like this anymore. Because the ludicrous has become the regular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it definitely caught my attention. I was just like, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, it, I mean, at the jail I work at, uh, we have seen a massive influx of people. I face as many in 40 and 50 people a day almost, you know, from, you know, different parts of the country and so forth and so on. And it's it's become a major issue. Yeah. I mean, they're picking up people no matter what the situation is. They're just they're just snatching them up and incarcerating them with the expectation of deporting them. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, like people are, are getting what up. happens with that whole broadening of power thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Absolute that. power is corrupted and corruptible is absolute power. Yeah. Because I think it's crazy when they talk about um, they, they interviewed the mayor of Dallas, I believe it was, who um, one of the raids happened in. And they were just talking about how, um, you know, sanctuary cities have been targeted. And there's nothing 
illegal, which I, I never even thought about that it could possibly be illegal to be a sanctuary city, but it's completely within the rights of a city to not cooperate with immigration officials mm -hmm. as far as doing their job. I mean, that's all sanctuary cities are, which are cities who have found it much better to have, a, you know, a more cohesive community by allowing, you know, people who are undocumented to go to hospitals, to the police, you know, to report crimes in their own neighborhoods, you know, to assist in recovery of, you know, of uh, a natural disaster or something because they feel like they're a part of community. Um, right. Without, ha without having the fear of having to be deported, unless you commit a crime, which is when they will, you know, cooperate, which seems completely yeah. reasonable, you know? Like, yeah, you commit you rob someone. Why aren't they working towards getting these people documented then? You're in the right, sanctuary right. city. We're going to work with you. We're going to cooperate with you. You cooperate with us. In exchange, we're going to get you documented so that, A, we can make sure you don't have any sketchy history going on, and then, B, it also means that if something happens, you have to worry about deportation, and then, lastly, you can start paying into some of these systems that you are drawing down, which is what's freaking a lot of people out. Well, the, the short answer to that question is simply politics. Um, it's, up, it's politically disadvantageous for any politician to, to do that, except in the most liberal of cities. And there are cities in which that is the case. Um, you can sign up for a local ID, um, you know, that just says you're undocumented, so you can use it to get work and so forth, and other papers, uh, you know. Um, and yeah, they, they basically say they will not share that information. And they're trying to, you know, uphold that bargain, because I think the only thing that will prove to people who are in that vulnerable situation is that they haven't done it in the past, you know. So I think a lot of these cities, like they were saying, the, the mayor who was on there, was like, it took them decades to earn the trust of their communities. And, you know, things like this are, can break it, you know. Like, this, it's not an easy process. Yeah. Okay. Um, excuse, my, um, excuse my ignorance in this matter, but um, I'm not sure who was the person that did the treating between Cuba and America, but whenever a Cuban touch land, they get a free pass. They get their green card. They get Social Security. They get assistance. Why is it that we're unable to do the same thing for other immigrants that we were able to do for the Cuban um, immigrants who were fleeing from Castro? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer to that is politics. Monetary or what? No, I mean, it, it was a, a complete political move to allow that to happen for Cuban refugees. Uh, and it was basically because we were in a somewhat cold war with Cuba. Um, we were just saying it was a, a, a policy to... Other Muslim countries was, you know... No, no, I'm just saying... No, I'm just saying we were in a war, a cold war with Cuba, and we were trying to encourage people to flee Cuba by mm -hmm. allowing them automatic citizenship into our country. That was that was just basically like any sort of like tax break, for instance. Like if you give people tax breaks on buying homes, it makes it more attractive to buy homes. You know what I'm saying? Just saying like it's more attractive to try to flee the United States if you know you'll get citizenship. Okay. That's why they did it. Yeah. But, They're but basically the, trying to destroy the, the Castro regime. Anyway. But here's the but here's the other thing. Why? Uh, but. 
Cubans, unlike Muslims, are not a monolithic people. Because, you know, you can't trust those Muslims. Any one of them at any time could be hiding a bomb under a turban. But that's the same thing I felt about the Cubans when they first set into Miami, is that they had them in concentration camps, and they were the scum of the earth, but after a while, all that changed, for whatever reason. Yeah, but they did the same thing, they did the same thing with the Japanese. So, yeah, that's what happened here at war. Yeah, and of course, I, yeah. of course, for anybody actually listening, I was using air quotes and being suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I know we convert these to audio podcasts, and you can't see me doing this. Your <laughs> inbox is going to be Phil Derek Jones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I am yeah. not anti Muslim. Any, oh, any deal whatsoever. Some of my best friends are Muslim. But, uh, <laughs> but also, as well, Trump said he was trying to create jobs. Could this also be, unfortunately, this is the wrong, maybe the wrong way of looking at this, but could this also be the way of him creating more jobs with the process of rounding up uh, more um, immigrants who may be here illegally, and I think some are here legally, but they're still being deported, um, could, well, you know, the, you know, I, I, actually, I actually, actually, I, I agree with Lonnie on that. They have these people literally in correctional facilities, laying on the floor with their children. To me, to me, it looks. I'm surprised Peter haven't stepped in because this shit looks. Ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I'll tell you this though. Um, one of the more interesting uh, stories I heard about the immigration enforcement. Um, has been the use of former undocumented uh, people to round up undocumented people because part of you know finding people to round up is infiltrating people's communities and so forth. So it is true that they <laughs> kind of like you know spies that go into places. I mean that's that's kind of how that works, you know. Um, is, what jobs are, are is this creating, Lonnie? Um, from the there was a special I watched on Netflix. I think it's called Thirteenth Amendment or Thirteenth Something. This black lady that um, I'm sorry, Thirteenth Amendment. It's called the, um, so yeah. I watched Amendment. I, I watched that documentary as well as I've seen some other documentaries, and um, and the way that they break down the cost of running correctional facilities as well as running um, uh, facilities to house um, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, refugees. I hate to use that word, refugees. Um, but it, it, it's a big business, especially when it's privately owned. It is a big business, and I know yeah. for like places like maybe Job Corps. They also get a hundred and well, they get a fifteen hundred dollars a month, if not a little bit more, to house one to, to house one student. So just imagine with the correctional facility, each head you get a cut on that head. So I think it's a big yeah. business. Uh, but that's not creating, but that is a big business, but it's not creating jobs. And this yes. is this is the it's not. It's it's not creating <laughs> The kind of jobs that you're talking about, that's not creating jobs, that's creating profit. So, so who the yeah. fuck is going to run these places then? Who are going to be working these places that are going to wake these people up to fix their food? Like, um, okay. no, I, so, no, my, no, my no. dad lives in Arcadia. Arcadia is a small place out of nowhere. Go ahead. 
All right. So here's what no. I, here's what I want. Hold on, Malcolm. Here's what I want you to okay. do to find, and I'm sure on your Facebook friends list you can find one correctional officer. I want you to find a correctional officer, and I want you to ask him how he feels about his job. Does he feel that he has the proper amount of backup? Does he feel that there are enough people working in the prison? I want you to ask that question. I want you to ask, do they feel that they've been properly trained to do this job? Because my roommate is a former correctional officer um, from Baltimore City. have you? Yes, I worked. And, and when he left, he saw the change coming. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why he left is because he was in a lockdown for like thirty-six hours. Um, some stuff went down because there was not enough people working. Because, mm-hmm. which like everything else, especially with these privatized uh, uh, jails. There's, mm-hmm. it's again, profit before anything else. To the bare bones, we can have the barest amount of people working in these facilities, and then we can make all this extra money. Mm-hmm. So, no, that's not a lot of jobs, and they're not being trained properly. So, no, it's not, it, it's not the job that you're, that you're talking about. I mean, that's a few thousand jobs, a few hundred thousand jobs. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say that I actually agree with Lonnie um, on the fact that I think it creates jobs. And I agree with you, Derek, as well. Like, how well, how good paying, how secure those jobs are is, you know, another question entirely. But does it create jobs? Yes. I mean, it has to. But yeah, like, how effective are they? Could you make better choices? Couldn't you be spending the money, you know, more efficiently? say, to educate people, for instance, <laughs> uh, which is a lot less expensive than housing them. Uh, you know, and even just bringing up the entire idea of, um, you know, infrastructure, for instance, you know, it's all about how you label it. Like, you know, the $12 billion wall, you know, for Mexico is probably going to be folded in with whatever infrastructure plan that Trump comes up with, you know. Um, Maybe even the prisons that you're talking about might be involved. I'll tell you how the wall will built cheap be built cheaply. It'll be built with uh, with with jail labor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I mean, yeah, yeah, you can spend the money, and then you got to ask about if you're creating these government jobs. There was one warden. How are you actually already said? Hey, I will send my prisoners down there to help build the wall. Yeah. No, no doubt. And this is the other thing I would say is, you know, if you're um, spending this money to pay people, to hire people through government action, where's the money coming from? Because, you know, Donald Trump and Republicans in general are proposing yet again one of the largest tax cuts, you know, in history. So you're going to create jobs by spending money to house or deport 11 million undocumented people in the country, which you could do. I mean, you could. It would cost a shit ton of money. Yeah. And where's that money coming from? It's coming from other things. <laughs> it's what it's coming from. It's coming out of your pocket. 
you know, and wouldn't you rather see it used more productively? At a school that yeah. Betsy DeVos can, you know, buy the pencils because she don't know where the pencils are. Yeah, that's the only thing they're saying. Yeah, they're jobs, but yeah, you could make better jobs <laughs> doing better things. You know, like, yeah. I understand the idea of, you know, punishing crime, and we already do that. <laughs> we already punish crime. We're talking about deporting people who haven't done anything. So, anyway. Um, think about that. Let's go to Lonnie's video, since we're talking to Lonnie. <laughs> um, I guess because of a quirk of my system right now, I could actually play the video because I have not watched it, actually. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what the video is on, Lonnie? Um, which one are you talking about? Boyce Watkins or, or I'm sorry, Dr. Watkins or who? Um, I'm trying to think. It was I think it was dealing with affirmative action. Is that the one? Oh, um, I had a conversation with um, Derek. Is it okay if I say our conversation? Don't work yourself out. Um, because I never really thought about affirmative action. I thought affirmative action was something that is a beautiful thing to have. And I know being from Miami, well, I can't say Miami, but Fort Lauderdale, um, we had affirmative action. And once they took away affirmative action, um, a lot of the jobs that people once qualified for, especially if you don't speak Spanish, um, you no longer qualified for. And I just was, I watched the video and I listened to Derek. He said he once had a stand that he agreed with it. If, if I'm quoting him correctly, because he is here today, so he can speak for himself. But he, after someone um, explained it to him and he had a conversation with someone, he then looked at it differently than he once did. So that was all it was basically. Okay. Um, is it okay if we uh, play a little bit of the video? I think I just found it. Um, I don't own the rights. That's owned by somebody else. Yeah. All right. Well, I was just saying if you think it's appropriate, but let me go ahead and hit play. If I can get it to play. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe Derek can expand on his views about affirmative action. I would love to truly hear his views. And also Xavier, since he's sitting back on the Playboy bed. <laughs> well, okay. So, I, know, Xavier, I know, I'm so disrespectful. I'm sorry. I got no problem with what you're saying out of your mouth, out of your face. Um, I fully believed in affirmative action. Um, it was a it was supposed to be a way of leveling the playing field in places where we had we as people of color had not been allowed to go and to flourish you know and to show what we could do um it kind of gave us an end now as i've gotten older I've gotten to see some of the effects of affirmative action, which are those, we no longer do those things ourselves. Whereas we once had this great pool of people of color saying, okay, use the advertisement. 
Um, whereas before, they wouldn't let people of color into these advertising agencies to work. We went out and made our own advertising agencies. We had this yeah. great pool of people of color that were doing this. And, well, and then with affirmative action, it opened the doors to remove people from that pool. And then the need for the for our own peer. So we didn't have our own anymore. So I know I think we I think now there are like three uh um three people of color owned um advertising agencies working in this country now. I might be exaggerating that number. But I know there were a lot more at one point. So that's a yeah. downside to affirmative action. You go from being this great fish in this small pond that could be a larger pond to becoming a small fish in this large pond that's never going to get any bigger. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I think there's a cost. Um, I think the whole point of affirmative action is to say that you know, equality alone is not going to get us to equality. Basically, saying no. equality of opportunity itself is not enough. Um, whatever form affirmative action takes, which is, it's dealing with actual uh, programs of education or Pell grants or you know helping you get hired or whatever it is, you know we have to actually promote diversity because it's not really within our nature to do it without some effort and the government should be a part of that in some way. Obviously private citizens themselves should be, you know, encouraging people of color to be involved in every form of public life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think the government itself plays a role in it because it played a role in the problem. So it needs to play a role in the solution as well. How that form takes, I don't know. And I think there are costs for any action you take, um, whether it be financial or, cultural or you know even you said actual you know i guess policies have unintended consequences that i think you have to to stomach and face head on so i don't you know well to say that you don't agree at this point with affirmative action or you do still agree with affirmative action i mean i'm it's a mixed bag i don't know um I do think action, that it, unfortunately is necessary. Um, yeah. The outcome of it, which as yeah. which is we don't we no longer have our own when we talk about black owned businesses and such. That's the trade off. The trade off is we don't have as many black owned businesses because we are out working for other people instead of working for ourselves. Think that that option well, should be removed. Go ahead. See, that's not a function of affirmative action, though. That's a function of our behavior as people. Affirmative action is. Affirmative action. I don't think that's a function of affirmative action. I think that is an outcome of affirmative action. Yeah, so that's why I say you need to keep it for, that, for the purpose of not to say that it is or is not going to create black-owned businesses because I feel like if that's the case, those people who are going to create black-owned businesses will do that whether um, 
affirmative action exists or not. Um, if anything, black people should want to create their own businesses because they're sick of the injustice they suffer as other people's businesses. Whether they are you as a customer, you as an employee, you suffer some bullshit at your own personal job. And for that reason, I could see you want to go out. But the issue I think that sometimes come up with affirmative action and black people sometimes fail to remember is that it doesn't just benefit us, it benefits a multi number of, of it, multi, it benefits anybody and everybody given the situation. Now, there are points when I find a reason or want to disagree with it. For instance, there is the opportunity for, say, a Caucasian to go to a um, HBCU on scholarship because in that capacity, they are considered the minority. And I don't agree with that. What? But all of that comes out, comes out of affirmative action. Why, why don't you agree with that? Yeah. Agree with that because the reason for the development of the HBCUs was because once upon a time, the white schools and the state schools did not allow for the African Americans to attend. And if I was an African American attended an HBCU, I had to pay full price. So it does, and then, like I say, there are other ways that it, it doesn't serve the purpose to me. To me, it, what it does is it allows an opportunity for somebody who already has ample opportunity to get another opportunity. Can, can I just interject for one quick second? I do apologize, Xavier. I, I don't want to cut off yes. your thought. Is, is it okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Could it be that those white kids that's going to the black schools, could it be that they are to be the predominantly white schools because they're from a lower class environment? A, 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 uh, lower, uh, ec- ec- economic reasons, I just say that, economic reasons. And so it's cheaper for them to go into the black, um, HB, the black school versus going into predominantly a white school like Harvard or whatever. I mean, that may be a decision that they make, and that might be the reasoning for that decision process. But take me, for instance. I went to a private white college. Well, I had to pay full price. Was I a majority on that campus? No, I was not. I wasn't. So for me, um, if I chose to go to any school, regardless of what the school was, I would have to pay for the price. My color alone did not allow me to go to any school um, for free, and it's not. Yeah. I think the question I would ask any of, any of you on the panel is, what would the purpose be of subsidizing this white student to go to a HBCU? Yeah, what, what maybe he's from, well, maybe he's from the no, game. He's the assistance. No, I'm just saying, what do you think the, the, the point of that policy is from the get-go? I'm not sure I like, understand your question. No, I'm just saying, like, why by establishing a policy that you are subsidizing white students to go to an HBCU, what are you hoping to gain from that? Or what do you think the government or whoever instituted it that policy already exists. That's uh, affirmative. Right. right. I'm just saying for the white students, though, what are you trying to get? I get for the, the black students, like what ultimately you're trying to promote is to, you know, heal some of the wounds of racial segregation and slavery, right? So you're trying to right a wrong. No, no that's, not, that's not the point of affirmative action. It's not about healing any wounds of slavery. It is. Uh, it was about with government jobs, I believe, actually, it was about to allow people of color into certain positions. But because you can't make a 
rules specifically like that for one group of people. What Xavier and I are saying is that that rule already exists for that white kid to go to the HBCU under mm-hmm. affirmative action because he would be the minority. Yeah. But anything else, it already exists. Right. I'm just saying I don't see how that applies to white students because I don't think that's the goal of affirmative action. So that's why I would just disagree with it. It just seems like but nothing this country has ever made has been to apologize for slavery because they have never actually apologized for it and they never will actually apologize for it because they've never fully acknowledged it. Well, I agree with you. Well, I'm just saying like the auspices of affirmative action, the title of it is because of the disadvantages that the black community has in general. And so that's why I don't understand why you would extend that to a white student, because that doesn't seem like, to, at least to me, my understanding of it, the goal of affirmative but, in the first place. Exactly. But the diversity, like like you guys promote diversity. So how no, do you do it? It's not true, though. Some diversity isn't necessary because it... That's fine. Yeah. You know. We're we're not saying like that. that. We're saying we're not saying you can't come to the school. We're saying pay to go. But maybe they yeah. can afford to pay the full price. In that uh, another issue altogether, and you can still get grants for being a low income student. Right. That's a complete African American student. I'm more likely to not be able to afford to go to college, and subsequently, why most African Americans don't go to college is the inability to afford it. So, why do they not these these things not exist for me in that same capacity? Yeah, I, I, I totally understand subsidizing a white student to go to school for the reasons that you said. For Can economic I reasons. I think, I think this conversation, I think it's interesting. I think this conversation is part of the problem with this country. We get so caught up on seeing black and white, and I know it's very anybody who knows me knows how extremely difficult this is for it to come out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> on black and white that we're losing the sight of the people. Are many white people living in poverty? <laughs> they cannot afford to send their children to school. There yeah. are many black people living in poverty who cannot afford to send their children to school. So these things should be available for children who want to go to school. Right. Regardless of, you know, the amount of melanin in their system. Right. And again, all of these are perfect world scenarios <laughs> because I do recognize that, you know, these issues exist and still exist. And like I said, until we actually have sit down and have rational, intelligent thought and conversation about them, they will continue to exist. But oh, yeah. I, yeah. But I do think that you know this kind of harkens back to that um, I did on SNL a couple months ago when Tom Hanks was on the show, and they did Black Jeopardy. <laughs> that he, yeah. as this you know white rural guy, suffered with all the same shit that these black people did. Yeah. Yeah, and held a lot of the same views on just life in general. I think good policies come from good ideas. So I think you have to remain focused when you're you're trying to create a policy, right? 
I mean, that was my, my thing about, um, you know, talking about affirmative action and how it should be implemented is get back to the original point of affirmative action. When you're trying to figure out whether or not this is applicable to a white student going to an HBCU. And, you know, I think you can have a conversation about what affirmative action's purposes were, and that's a, a good discussion to have because, you know, like I said, good policies come from good ideas. So I think you need to clarify your ideas as to why affirmative action exists or doesn't. You know, that's all I was getting at. To benefit the less privileged. I think that's a wider scope than affirmative action. Affirmative action was put in place to deal with the disenfranchisement of African-Americans in this country. That is the essence of why it was created. That was the time frame it was created in. And that was the purpose. We still live in that same time frame? We don't, but we never affirmative action either. <laughs> I say we do. <laughs> okay, so we okay, so I can see reason why somebody would say we do. Um, however, even if that is still the premise, if you still feel that way, then again, a white person would still, even under that thought process, a white person still should not be allowed to go to an agency for free. So even if you looked at it like that, you still can't justify because that's again still not the premise of affirmative action. So why do you think right, that the white I, I was just going to say, I could see them going to the university under a different program. Absolutely. Um, if they want to go to an HBCU or any college of their choosing, just because they're an American citizen, I would totally support that. Whether it's because of income or whatever, I think college education is a, it should be enough of a priority to pay for it. But that's just like if know, I that, want to go to Ole Miss, I'll give you an example. Ole Miss is the exact flip opposite of what uh, HBCU is. Yeah. Uh huh. One we've talked about before because of me and Derek is Jackson State. So Ole Miss is just what the name implies. It is O L E Miss. O L E Miss. And it is the South will rise again. Mississippi. And ain't College. that dude wearing a, a Confederate coat? And their mascot wearing a Confederate coat that they get. Well, generally, yeah, generally. Yeah, okay. I, they say they got rid of him as a mascot, but I, I don't remember. Something came up out of that, but that's another situation. All right. So this is a school who has been around since the 1800s. Okay, they have participated in stopping blacks in every corner. And even to this day, you meet a black student, you meet the right black student, they will tell you prejudice still significantly exists at this school. As old as this school is, they just had their they had their first only ever black homecoming queen two, maybe three years ago. And they'll never have another one. And she was the only one. They got this shit out the way. Let's get this shit out and, the way. Okay, now let's tell us about this shit. And they made sure they hit all of the minority trifectas. She was African American. She was heavy set. Her father was military. They hit all of it. They made sure to do it at one time. And that same year, they had this massive riot where there was a statue of the first black student on that campus. His statue was snatched down, the head decapitated from the thing. And they tried to say, oh, this had nothing to do with race. What the hell? Else? Anyway. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So they, the average black student there is not there for free. If they are there on a scholarship and they have a scholarship called the Lucky Day Scholarship, which I think is Sweet slap in the face, a bunch of bullshit. But it is a massive scholarship that will let you go to that school for free. 
and you do have to meet certain minority-based criteria to go. But when you look at the number of students that go to that school and for the programs that you have to fit in, you won't get a scholarship there unless you're a straight A student with a 4.0 and a 36 on the ACT. The average black student is not going there, even if you're an AB average with a 23 on the ACT. You're not getting a free ride at Ole Miss. Whereas if you are a student at Ole Miss, I mean, at Jackson State, which is an HBCU and you're white, as long as you meet criteria for admission, not scholarship criteria, which an African-American student would have to meet, as long as you meet criteria for admission, you get a scholarship. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a good point. And um, I'm sorry I couldn't play the video. I didn't. I don't know what's going on with this mixer or whatever, but I uh, just want to thank Lonnie for posting the video. Um, it's an interesting discussion. I, you know, I hope I wasn't shitting on your your uh, videos before in the message thread, but <laughs> saying like I can't always watch them because sometimes it just it's too much. But I have a lot of questions, so that's one of the reasons why I post the videos there so I can get you guys' thoughts. Um, because I enjoy you guys' thoughts prior to coming on here. So thank you. For at least no, I, I thank you as well. I, I think it was a great discussion. Um, I guess next on my list was going to be talking about um, LGBTQ rights and an executive order on immigration, which is interesting. Uh, this sort of came up with some of the refugees who were trying to get into the country and, uh, you know, the travel ban and so forth. So, I mean, one of the reasons why people are fleeing these countries um, is because they're gay, <laughs> man or lesbian or transgender, because a lot of the, in many, if not all of these countries, uh, if it's not completely illegal, it is socially, it will get you killed, you know? So, I don't know, it's just like another angle to this that I may have missed when we were talking about it last week. Uh, I didn't even think about like many people who fled and want to be able to travel back home to, you know, interact with their families or whatever, but at the same time live a life openly gay or lesbian or transgender, you know? Uh, I don't know. That was just a point of thought <laughs> that I want to amend to last week's conversation. We actually had some feedback on that as well. I forgot about the Q&A to check it. I don't know if anyone can see it from their screen. I've been checking it. Um, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Nobody has. Yeah. Someone basically gave me the feedback to say you didn't really focus on LGBTQ rights and so forth when we were talking about immigration last week. So my bad. You know, it is a serious thing. <laughs> we, we, I, I thought we did. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. There, <laughs> when we were talking about immigration debate, I talked about like students and academics and all these other you know groups that you know, make a difference to our communities. But, you know, on the other point, there's just, uh, a, you know, a lot of refugees from these countries are, you know, because of that. So it's another issue. Um, let's move on to something else I had. Um, I mean, did, did, we, did we actually have to talk now? Was that it? I don't know. Unless you had any comments on it. I don't know. No one said oh. anything. <laughs> I mean, you were ta you were talking, right? I mean, I know occasionally we all jump in, but for the most part, as the moderator, we do 
let you get the point out before you open the floor. So I'm just asking. Oh, okay, okay. No, no. Uh, any, does anyone have an idea on that or a comment they would like to make about? Okay, so what exactly does the what does? Hmm. Well, I I can play the story that's attached to it and see if it makes any sense. Um, if it'll play. Are we talking about the the thing that Mark posts in the group about the um, LGBT community, transgen transgender community? Um, no, um, no. This was just. Um, I think this was basically. Um, an Iranian, uh, a conversation with an Iranian uh, refugee um, who basically was talking about how it affect his life and why he fled Iran. Um, so he fled because uh, he was gay. He wanted he wanted to yeah. be free. Yeah, yeah. And he came. Um, let me see if it will play. Just, yeah, he came to the United States. Yes. Oh wow. Uh, this is, now let's meet a man affected by President Trump's executive order suspending admissions of refugees. He fled his home country of Iran because he's gay, and Iran has a history of executing gay people. This man was supposed to come to the United States. Instead, he's stuck in Turkey, which is where NPR's Peter Kenyon spoke with him. I got hold of Arash. He's afraid to give any more of his name than that. A day after his dream of reaching America was thrown into limbo. When I got the call, I was stunned. My life suddenly seemed impossible. I'm completely confused. I don't know if my country of residence is changing or not. I have no idea of what's going to happen to me. The call from his migration agency told him he'd been tripped up at the finish line by President Trump's executive order. Arash had been forced to flee Iran after his boyfriend's father discovered their relationship. And he says if he goes back, he'll almost certainly be arrested. His wait in Turkey as a refugee was tightly controlled by the police, who just days earlier produced his exit permit so he could travel to the U.S. Monday. He's already given up everything he owned except what could fit in two suitcases. The place I was living in, all my furniture, that's gone. I don't have anything but these two bags. I'm almost out of money. Arash is one of many stranded LGBT refugees who, in desperation, called Arshim Parsi. He directs IRQR, the Iranian Refugee Queer Railroad. It's a Canadian-based nonprofit that helps LGBT refugees with their resettlement cases. Parsi says Canada used to be a popular destination for Iranians, but then Ottawa changed its policies to favor Syrian refugees, shoving others to the back of a long, slow-moving line. Parsi says the UN High Commissioner for Refugees started looking elsewhere. And the UNHCR encourage LGBT refugees to go to the United States because it's going to be a shorter process. It could still be true if this suspension is lifted in the coming weeks or months. But Parsi says if LGBT refugees have to switch back to Canada for resettlement, they could be in for a very long wait. Honestly, I don't know what will happen for a lot of them. They are very, very you know, vulnerable and we deeply concerned about their situation. Another Iranian LGBT refugee and activist, Ramin Hagju, says he's been hearing desperate reactions among those waiting to be resettled. He repeats one comment from an LGBT refugee stuck in Turkey. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to die here. Continuing in Farsi, he says anxiety and depression are common reactions. These people risked everything to escape Iran, he says, and this news is devastating to me. Hagju's own story shows the old system was working, at least for some. I interviewed him back in 2010 when he was waiting as a refugee in Istanbul. By the following spring, he was resettled in Washington, D.C. 
with a job at a foundation. Today, he says, he's heartened by the protests against the order. It's right that the president of the United States can give orders. He's the president, he says. But then I see the Women's March, and I see all these protests popping up at airports, and it tells me the people of the United States aren't behind these policies. Hagju knows he's one of the lucky ones. He's been reunited with his partner, and they're making plans to get married. But for other LGBT refugees from Iran and the other countries affected by the executive order, that kind of stability and happiness feels a long way off. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Okay. Let me see if I can pause. So you're able to hear that well? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any thoughts about this story? That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really. I mean, it, it comes out simplistic, but the truth of the matter is that's fucked up. You have, you, you have sacrificed, literally, everything that you have. Uh-huh. Your home, which you can uh-huh. never return to. And now, you know, you literally are stuck in limbo. You have no idea what's about to happen next. Right. And then, it's, you know, obviously the, the order is going through the courts right now. But the reality is, is that he can just issue another order. I mean, he, he, yeah. he does have the right. process all over again. Yeah, this is the truth. Like, he has a right to ban anyone from coming into this country. Actually, any American... You might know you don't actually have a constitutional right to leave the United States. You don't. No, you don't. The president can, without any, well, actually, he does need to give a cause, usually national security, um, to say that we ban all immigration, all travel in and out of the United States. He can do that. That's because he's the president. Yeah, he can do that. Why don't these, uh, like the LGBT people in other countries, hmm. uh, why, you, you know, please, you guys don't chop my head off. I'm just making, I'm just asking a question. We never do. Um, why don't they just simply fight in their own, like, why not band together in their own country to fight for their civil rights? Like, what is it so great about America that they want to come over here because, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of black people died for the freedoms that we have now. So why not be that that same martyr or that same person in your own country to fight for your for the freedom of gay people in your own country? Oh my God, Martin, that is so stupid. <laughs> but but as much as, yeah, as bad as the United States was. Yeah. As much as we complain, the truth of the matter is we live in this type of society where we can do that. But well, now yes, we people do. Have died. We do. Hello. Well, y'all got to think about numbers. There is more. Yeah. There was a greater, a greater population of people here, and then there's a greater population of people here who can participate in a fight like that. They can't kill everybody, but in some of these foreign countries that you're talking about, these people fleeing out of, out of maybe 20 of, out of, I'm sorry, out of 200,000 of them, maybe there's a thousand gay people. Well, systematically, they can't kill that many people or incarcerate or other. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and how do you organize something like that? 
Yeah. Right. You're already, just, coming, just, you're already coming from a third world country or from a country that lacks, you know, social media or lacks certain other things. So how do you organize a protest or organize these types of things when these things exist not only in your direct community, but the laws that govern these things exist within your government? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that um, in countries like Iran, you don't have rights. You don't have the right to speak up or protest. You will be arrested. There are people who, you know, just criticizing the government would send you to prison. And there would be no question as to whether or not uh, that was a legal action because that's their rule of law. I just think it's a completely different context uh, when you're talking about civil rights in the United States and civil rights in Iran, because they are both, they both have the same names, but they're just worlds apart. Yeah. They're not the same. So, um, I know how bad, you, yeah, it bad. I know how you feel about folks marching here, but you know, at least they never, when there was a march or whatever, they literally never stood on a tower and just picked everybody off in a hail of gunfire. Again, they can, yeah. can do that in other places. Yeah, Iran is often one of those places where someone has done a radio show and they leave the studio and they're never heard from again. Because uh-huh. they just disappeared. You know, the government picked them up, you know, tortured them and killed them. But didn't they do that here before too? I'm sure they have. Just not as consistently and as, you know, thoroughly as it would happen in countries like Iran. And, all right, maybe I just need to take a chill because you know, I'm just like... I still don't get why you would march in America to something that's happening over in your own country. Why not go back to your own country to do that march? But, you know, maybe it doesn't sound um, politically correct to say, but the facts are not there. It's not about that. To make change, you have to make change in your your own country. Honestly speaking, I just think that if you want change to happen, you have to be there on the ground in your own country to make no, that change. Not, not if you want to survive. <laughs> not if you want to survive. You actually would need to flee first and then criticize the regime because if you do it there, you will die. Okay, well, I digress. And that's kind of, and Lonnie, that's kind of what this country was built on. Folks came here because they was, you know, uh, fleeing the tyranny of the of the crown, right? Religious persecution. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. with Harriet Tubman and people like that, so they was they was fleeing from another country, or they were here. Yeah, no, I'm talking they were about fleeing the from the south. I think the south could be considered from, yeah, another, country. another country. Yeah, she had to flee the south first before she could do that. Yeah, she did. Okay, okay, I digress. Okay, thank you for answering my question. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, moving on. <laughs> if there was anything else anyone wanted to talk about on that video, I mean that um, that news story, I thought it was interesting. No, just- I, no, I just I appreciate someone bringing it to my attention, and hopefully, uh, you feel satisfied with that conversation that we had about it because <laughs> it has just, an angle I did not um, take before uh, that seriously. Anyway, sometimes you have to hear hear stuff like that in order to realize that, you know, are rather lucky. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to um, get to a, a topic that I think Xavier brought up once before, which is uh, what can the Democrats learn from the Tea Party? And um, yeah, I mean, there was a story. I don't know if I want to play this one again because, you know, I'm not trying to make this a clip show. So I think basically what they were saying, uh, they were talking to one of the organizers of, I believe the name of the group was called Undivided. Um, so they're ones who are organizing protests at the rallies. We were talking about the um, town hall meetings. And I believe they're the ones who were behind um, the one you were speaking about, the guy who, I think he had a, a school auditorium as his, uh, as his town hall meeting. And typically you get maybe 100 people show up and you know, you talk to people who are concerned and, you know, you meet with your constituents and usually, you know, there might be some, you know, protests or angry people you have to talk to, but typically it's rather calm. I think in this stadium could hold a thousand people. It was filled all the way up and the entire parking lot. (laughs) I believe so. Yeah. The entire parking lot of the school where it was held was filled with people and it had a lot to do with this organization called undivided and it's similar. I mean, they're, they're saying it out loud that they're borrowing tactics from the tea party, except they're trying to be bipartisan. So, I mean, they're trying to welcome in people who disagree with Trump, who are part of the Republican party so that, you know, when people go to these meetings, they're not a bunch of Democrats. <laughs> They're actually the people who voted for him um, protesting what he's doing. And I said, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because they're not even going to care about some Democrats. You don't vote for me anyway. Like, you know, but actual Republicans showing up saying, I voted for you and I want you to do your job. <laughs> so the reason that they were um, protesting this guy is because of uh, one of his votes. I believe it was for. Shit, I can't remember. It was either for the Attorney General or uh, Bessie DeVos, the Education Secretary. I can't remember. But one of those those happened this week, and he defended her. I believe it was Bessie DeVos. Um, And they were just saying, like, it, you know, it was somewhat, I think it was her, because obviously this meeting was at a school. It was at a public school. And some of the things they said to him were fucking brilliant. Um, They were... (laughs) He was just saying, like, the only only plus they can see, I think one person said, of Betsy DeVos being education secretary is that she'll get to visit a public school. I have <laughs> heard that. Yeah. <laughs> At least she'll get to visit one, so maybe she'll understand. Maybe she'll learn something. Who knows? Like, they're being super sarcastic. But it's happened. She's going to be the education secretary. Well, she and may get to visit yeah. the school, but she won't get to go inside. <laughs> the last time yeah yeah so uh absolutely yeah. brilliant you know, yeah yeah you have to look for the you have to look for the silver the, the silver lining and clouds and in the presidency it literally is coming together it's just saying no ma'am no yeah and not only that, like just talking about the things that she advocates for, like uh, vouchers for public schools, I think is has been one of those fights, a messaging fight 
that the Democrats have lost. And yes, they have. It hasn't really, yeah, I think because the term vouchers implies that you're going to get to go to a private school. And who wouldn't want to send their kid to a private school, right? You know, that sounds good. Let's take the money that you are using for this public school and, and put it toward this private school. I think that sounds reasonable. Great messaging. None of that bullshit is true. <laughs> that's not what a voucher is. About to say, I, a voucher, I was like, that's not what that is. I know. That's what I said, but that's their messaging on it. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. If you go to a fair or a, a barbecue or something, you get like vouchers for food, right? And each of those vouchers will get you a meal. You know, so the idea of a voucher is like you get this ticket and you get to go to a private school. That's the messaging behind it, the subconscious messaging that that was fucking brilliant and evil. Because <laughs> it's it's not that. It's not that. It's a tax incentive. Yep. Basically, it's a tax incentive to get you to go to private school. Or it's a charter school. Let's not forget, let's not forget the, the, the charter schools, which nobody actually looks into. Yeah. You don't actually get money. You get a lot of times you just shows up in your tax returns. You get a tax incentive to send your child to private school. That's what you get. That's not something very popular. <laughs> Just saying. Like, no. I was like, what is that? That's all I get? No, it's not. Because you got to think about it. You still have to be able, and the tax incentive isn't so great that it's going to pay for the student's tuition. Um, right. It's only a tax break. It's just a small little, here's a Get some interest back off yeah. of what you got paid for this child to go to college, and that's I mean, go to school. And we're just talking about K through 12, um, right? And, and it's going to be a drop in the bucket because even let's say, let's say we were on a cheap end of going to school, let's say your child went to a cheap public private school and it was eight thousand dollars a semester, or, and there were two semesters in a year, then. You have paid $16,000 for this child to get out of the ninth grade. Right. And who's just yeah. got an extra grand thrown around in a year? And, oh, we're going to give you this voucher for here's $1,000 back off of that. Yeah. So on top of that, they're, you're going to propose defunding public schools and giving in tax incentives to rich people to go to private school. That's what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And that's some bullshit. <laughs> that's why people post. again don't forget the charter schools. Yeah, <laughs> but this, this is what schools. they voted for. This is what you voted for. They failed to realize when you vote for a candidate, you vote for him and his cabinet, and you vote for the strings that he's going to come with. So a lot of these people who were talking about he forgot about the middle class work. I mean, a Democrats forgot about. The middle class worker, they forgot about this group, they forgot about that group. You all can't afford to go to these schools. You never could. You're not going to now. And right. now that you voted Trump in because you want him to quote unquote drain the swamp and you wanted him to get out of these people that were going to keep us in the status quo where we were. And it's, it's my whole issue with this whole thing is everybody, y'all are getting what you want. This is what yeah. you ask. You ask for Trump and you ask for every damn thing that comes with him. So that means that your child's school is going to get shabby and raggedy. And, you know, the school is going to be looking at the parents to help supply money for the books and for 
supplies and so forth and so on because all the money is going to these private institutions and charter schools that already are collecting tuition. Now they're going to get federal money on top of that. And then there's that whole question that came up from Elizabeth Warren was, how are you going to monitor all of this? How are you even going to make sure that the private schools, the charter schools, are turning these kids out prepared to go to the next level like this? Here's the thing. They can't. They can't. can't, can't. No, they can't. One of the major reasons is because that money can be used if you choose to go to a religious institution. And it's actually illegal for the government to say anything about the way a religious institution teaches its children. They cannot, they can't favor the private, you know, non-sec, you know, the secular institution from the private because then you'd be showing favoritism. So actually they cannot legally, constitutionally have any oversight if they want it to be constitutional. And none of this stuff is illegal? No, not as long as there's no oversight. Yeah. If they did if they added oversight onto it, it would be constitutionally challenged. Yes. The problem the problem, Lonnie, is that so many of these things um okay, for instance, I'm gonna switch gears slightly. The banking regulations that were put into place by Obama when he took office. Because you remember when Obama took office, the country was hanging on by his fingernails because of all the toxic loans that were out there in the housing thing. Yeah. With the housing bubble burst. You remember that, right? Oh, yeah. So Obama put all of these banking regulations into place to prevent the banks from ever being able to do that again. No, Trump sorry. has removed those in his three weeks in office. Oh, okay. That's stupid. Okay. Yes, yeah, he removed all the but there but but it's not stupid if you're looking out for businessmen who have a lot of money to make a lot more money. We don't society don't like oversight. Because it's you telling us what we can and can't do to make more money. He said, uh, he said un- unequivocally while he was signing the papers, I'm doing this because a lot of my friends are being hurt by this and they're not able to make the money they're supposed to be able to make. Actually, it will take advantage of poor people means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Because what's important is the money to these really have money. So yeah, here's the, line. the school thing okay. kind of the same way. You know, there's no oversight on where this money goes. There's no oversight on not where it goes, but how it's used once it gets in these institutions. I, you know, telling these individuals, and I keep mentioning the charter schools because we keep talking about private schools and stuff, but nobody, you know, is mentioning the charter schools. Charter schools are independently run, and you can do whatever the fuck you want if you own a charter school. Yeah. I mean, you can be teaching the fourth grade and just be teaching the ABC. So uh, let me get this right about charter schools, because I'm not sure. Charter schools are publicly funded private schools. Is that right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Publicly funded, okay. private, private, publicly funded, privately owned. 
Yeah. Right. Kind of right. like the kind of like the jails. Right. Because okay. I have I have some friends who put their kids in a charter school and its grades went down dramatically from when they had been in public school because yeah. these parents monitored what their children were doing and working on. And you know, to be a to be a public school teacher in a public school, you have to have a degree. You have to have a, 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 a college degree and a teaching degree. You don't have to have a degree to teach in a charter school. Oh, fuck you. Yeah, and they don't have to be accredited either. You, you don't have to be, yeah, and they're not accredited, which means, like, my, my school that I went to, culinary school, lost its accreditation. It no longer recognizes these diplomas that you put out. Now, I still got to pay for the fact that I went to that motherfucker, but as an educational system, the place that I went to every day and paid several thousand dollars to is not recognized by the educational system as an actual place of learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 okay. Yeah, I mean, that That's, above like, okay. That's above my pay grade. Okay. It happened at Clark Atlanta, right? Back in the back oh, in the day. Yeah. And also AIU, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah. So I mean it, it happens for sure. And uh yeah, and all those things like on top of everything, you know, it should have been an easy call to oppose Betsy DeVos for education secretary. Just from her and I applaud the Republicans, I don't remember their names. One's from Alaska. Yeah. But I applaud the two Republicans that stood up and said, this shit is wrong, and I'm just not going to vote for it. Yeah, I think they're both from Maine. Susan Collins and um, God, I can't remember their name. It's definitely, they live in somewhat liberal states. Yes. So they're somewhat moderate Republicans. But, uh, yeah, only they have a 52 majority in the Senate, so they still had a 50-50 split. And uh, uh, President... Uh, Vice President Mike Pence come down and break the tie. Yeah, whenever they say Mr. President in the Senate, they're talking about Mike Pence because he's the president of the Senate <laughs> and he gets to break ties. In. And it's actually the first time in the United States history that there has been a tie on a um, a cabinet nomination. In fact, it was interesting. Um, one thing that caused that is because the Republicans got rid of the filibuster so on nominations, it used to require 60 votes. So had they not changed the rules, she would not have passed. In fact, most of these people wouldn't have. But how polarized our politics are right now, they got rid of the filibuster because none of these people would have passed if it required 60 votes. Yeah. Exactly. Every Democrat, except in one uh, or two occasions, voted against all these nominees. And we have... They didn't like, they didn't like the rules, so they changed them. Yeah, they only have 52 votes in the Senate. They didn't have 60. All those times the Democrats voted for these people wouldn't have made a difference had the filibuster been still in place. No, at no point have eight Republicans been peeled off. I mean, eight Democrats. At no point have eight Democrats voted for any of these nominees. Which is why I like they gotten one. What's that? That's why I like Republicans, because when they don't like the rules of some shit, they just change the rules. 
they just changed the rules. Again, as much as I am not a Republican, you have to admire motherfuckers who constantly bring a gun to a gunfight as opposed to what the Democrats do. Who right? Who bring bows and arrows to a gunfight? I don't get yes. where the fuck the Democrats come from. <laughs> and and I hate what do you think? They have the best strategy. We don't like. We're playing space. Oh my goodness, space! We're gonna play poker. That's what we're doing, and that's what they do. That's that's just how they do it. And I mean, but they but literally in the middle of the game after they get their hand. Oh no, we're not playing space. We playing poker now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing about the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to be on the Supreme Court is highly complicated. But at the same time, you got to realize they stole Obama's nomination from him just by saying, "You know what? We know that it's our job to, you know, actually approve your nominees, but we're not going to do it because we're Republicans. <laughs> we just make up the rules." It's literally in the Constitution. It's their job to advise and consent on these nominees. They just said, we won't do it. What are you going to do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know why no one actually fought back against that. Because that's, to me, <laughs> that seems against the rules. The whole thing is, yeah. Bonnie, what did you Go say? ahead, I'm sorry. I'm going to be a Republican like Xavier because I think he was <laughs> secretly Republican. <laughs> Is it a secret? I didn't think it was a secret. <laughs> I just thought, uh, no, I was going to ask um, Xavier's opinion about the Rule 19 that was used to silence Elizabeth Warren. So, you know. Elizabeth Warren is my future baby mama, in case y'all didn't know it. I think me and her would have a beautiful, evil child together. Um, So Elizabeth Warren got up there to oppose the pick for the attorney general. And she decided to use a letter that was written to him back 30 years ago by Coretta Scott King. that basically talks about who he was as a person and the things that he has done. And I mean, the letter was beautiful. I mean, it was. Yeah. of everything he's ever done. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she got halfway through, well, she got it to the beginning paragraphs. And so they initiated this Rule 19, which basically, the point, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but the point of it was to say that one senator won't throw blows at another senator, keep them from fighting. And it was, it's, it's something that came yeah. out back maybe 100 years, I think they said maybe 100 years ago yeah. when that rule was initially created. Yep. And has never been invoked until now. And so what she did was after they, she, she requested that they allow her to finish this because this was the hearing to say why they didn't approve of him. And so she felt like being that this was a letter about him written to another judge about him, that she should be allowed to write, to read this letter. And so she tried to make a case for it, but they shut her down. So she just went outside politely, got her, you know, normal crew of reporters in her face. And she read the damn letter anyways. And mm, so yeah. NPR and a couple people interviewed, and they said probably that was better for her because now the platform got a hell of a lot bigger. And I think yeah. if the Democratic Party is going to change, if they're going to turn this party around, it's going to be because of stuff, stunts like that. That's a stunt that the Republicans would approve. 
And Democrats yes. yeah. would have went and sat down, but Elizabeth Warren said, fuck this. I'm and she had to look her face. She just looked on her face like she didn't know what she was doing. But you know, good and too damn so well, Elizabeth Warren never did anything. She didn't know what she was doing. And she looked at them like, what? what? Why can't I finish this? She just had this star-crossed look like she didn't know. And <laughs> yes. about strategy-wise, this actually did better for her because everybody's attention focused on her and all of these tweets went out. And uh, I think uh, Hillary made a statement saying that they tried to silence her, but she rose up or she kept fighting on or something like that. So that became a big thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going Lonnie, we're going to come back to that statement. Huh? I actually wanted to read the, the rule. I just, I just looked it up. <laughs> so rule, uh, rule 19 has a, a long list of provisions in it. And it's just about the conduct of senators when they're debating or talking on the floor. And so it's rule uh, B2 on this list. And it says no, no senator shall, de- um, shall debate directly impugning uh, another senator by forms of words to that senator or any um, physical action or conduct that would prove unworthy of, be- of being a senator. That was that's the rule. So basically, if they decide your conduct <laughs> is unbecoming a senator, uh, they can they can tell you to just shut up. But what and if that is the rule of your conduct? Like you're just you're reading something from someone else, so that's really not your thoughts, and that's really not your well, I guess I can't say condom, but that's really not it's somebody else's thoughts. Well, basically, you can say that. Any senator can say, you're impugning someone else, and I don't like what you're saying. The president of the Senate has to agree with you, and that's my opinion. about King? She was saying that, not Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever what? the Republicans say because they're in control. So, yeah, they're like, I don't like what you're saying. Shut up. They can do that. <laughs> As a senator, that's the rules in place of being a senator. That the people in charge get to control the debate. If they don't like what you're saying, they can just say, "Shut up." So okay. that's part of the rules of being a senator that you agreed to when you took the oath of office. So it's on their website. <laughs> you can read it. It's like that. I'm sure uh, it's been looked up many times since then. So I have a I, I have a question. I need to go back for a minute. Yeah, Lonnie. When when Hillary's name was mentioned, you had a adverse reaction, I believe. I don't like Hillary, point blank. I like Elizabeth Warren. I'm voting for her in 2020, or whenever this, uh, whenever she runs for president, I am voting for her. She has my vote. I don't fuck with Hillary. I don't like her. Was there any particular reason, anything that Hillary did in particular to bring this visceral reaction? Um. I, I just don't personally, I just like, you know, people don't normally like me. So I just, you know, just something by Hillary Clinton. I just don't like I, I, I was just curious. No, I just don't like, I, okay. I, I just don't particularly care for Hillary, but it, you know, I voted for her, but I just don't particularly care for her. All right. Next question. I'm sorry. I'm feeding my face. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it got too quiet up in here. I have a hamburger in my mouth. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Always with the meat, this uh, Truly, he loves him some good meat, don't he? Lower hammer. <laughs> <laughs> what you say? One might say it. <laughs> I would say the thicker the better. That's true. 
Let's see if that were if there was nothing else on that. I just I did think the um, I agree with everyone as far as you know, Mitch McConnell silencing her. He's the majority leader of the Senate. Um, obviously, Mike Pence is just going to go along with what he says. But um, yeah, it was. Just, it, I felt it was a backfire. At the same time, I think the messaging out of the Republicans tends to be pretty good. And their uh, constituents and followers and supporters is that they want to elevate Elizabeth Warren because she's so radical that they're going to reject any. They're going to try to pin. Elizabeth Warren to every Democrat running. And I think that is what they should do, honestly. Because <laughs> she is massively popular. I think she is. So, anyway. They're betting that she won't be popular. And I think that's a bad bet. I do. Whatever. Yeah. I as, as, as opposed to their, you know, as opposed to the current president who is not popular at all, even right. with their bait. Exactly. I mean, they're trying all, to... And you all are going to pay for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're trying to distance themselves from Donald Trump as well. So, um, but, you, but you vote yes on his shit and not calling him out on his shit, so you can't dis- and this is the problem. This is mm-hmm. where this old thinking versus new thinking comes in. You can't distance yourself from sh- shit that you're saying yes to. Yeah, with it or you're against it, and you all have clearly been with it because you've been behind this bullshit. Yeah. So yeah, maybe yeah. you have them by the balls, and they can't do too much. And they have to agree with this bullshit. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's see. I got a few other topics. I did talk about. Uh, LGBT thing, Miami-Dade. We talked a little bit about sanctuary cities um, and some of the ways that Democrats are trying to mimic the um, the, uh, the Tea Party. Um, but I kind of want to talk about Steve Bannon. <laughs> it's one of my uh, real fears about the Trump administration. So, I don't know. I, I think we talked about him somewhat. But he had these issues that came up this week uh, talking a little bit about that uh, Saturday Night Live skit. And I just want to pick on him. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) it was reported that he and Trump watched that Saturday Night Live thing, uh, Melissa McCarthy uh, playing, who's that? What's his name? Spicer. Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer. Okay. They both saw it. Um, They watch it and tweet about it (laughs) all the time. And I guess at this point, he was so mad about it uh, that he didn't really say anything publicly, but it kind of leaked out because of the conversation they had and other conversations. But his issue with the sketch had nothing to do with um, with the content. It was just that a woman was playing Sean Spicer. <laughs> but she did a good job. That was the insult. <laughs> he thought it was like attacking the masculinity of his administration or some shit. Which, like that's what pissed him off. It's only been fifty to play him. You know, a woman needs to play him. Oh, it was fucking um, hilarious. Derek. I mean, Derek was totally on point when he talked about it last week. I took a look. I was like, "Holy shit, this is funny." <laughs> I was like, hurting my face. 
It was so funny. By the time I got to like the guy in the CNN cage, I lost my shit. <laughs> and then she starts beating them with the pulpit. I was like, oh my God. Did you see the last night? No, I didn't. No. Okay. I'm not going to spoil it for you. It opened the show, and I almost didn't make it through the rest of the show. It almost made me ill from laughing. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I'll let yeah, you watch that... it. I will, I will wait for you to message me when you see it. Okay. <laughs> I will. No, yeah, my uh, weekends have been super uh, busy. I haven't got a chance, so I will catch up on it today. And... Um, yeah, no, I just thought it was interesting because of the conversations that Steve Bannon was having about it and his clear sort of misogyny about it. Because <laughs> that was what, I mean, the conversation was in this uh, interview uh, was another aide who was in the room when they saw it. And that was the thing they were all talking about was that, you know, they're all mad that they're short of feminizing them can, for their administration. Can, can we take a second since mm. you brought this up? Can we take a second to talk about the amount of leaks that are coming out of this White House? A lot of leaks. They are. Like diarrhea of the mouth. (laughs) Just the the verbiage that is coming forth from these folks who cannot hold their shit or keep secrets. Yeah, I think one of the things they mentioned, because um, there was a story about it, too, you know, reporters just talking about um, why, why is this happening? And they had, I believe, three reasons, because they said at no point is there a single cause for something like this. Uh, but here was their explanation. One was just the clear inexperience of some of the people he has working for him. A lot of them have not actually held these sort of high profile positions. Um if you consider, um, what's her name, the alternative facts lady? <laughs> you know, her. Oh, Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway, for instance. You know, her big position before working for the Trump administration was as a pollster in Florida. Like, she doesn't really have any experience being, you know, a spokesperson for the president or anyone. I mean, same deal with a lot of his advisors as well. I mean, they just don't have government experience and they don't really understand the sort of um, nuances. I don't know. Yeah, the nuances. I was just thinking about the crowd mentality of the press and how hungry, voraciously hungry the press is. has no idea because that press room, I mean, I watch I watch that uh, I watch him almost every day and I've got to call it adult romper room. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. over that class whatsoever. Yeah, I don't know much about Sean Spicer's background um, as far as that is, but if it holds true to the rest of the administration, they tend to see themselves as political outsiders, and this is part of the consequences of being one, is that you just don't have the experience to do the job efficiently. I mean, they're doing it in a horrible manner because they have to, but just clearly, like, they make mistakes. Um, and I guess the second reason that I gave in this interview was basically that there are people within an administration who disagree. Um, they also are kind of just making power plays. They want to be closer to the president or, you know, have more power. So they're making, a move. yeah, they're making a move against other people in the administration that they disagree with. 
Um, because they're treating it like a business, and that's what you do in a business. Yeah. That's what you do in corporate life. You make moves, you know, if I take this motherfucker down, I can get his position. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's basically what they're doing. So it's a very dysfunctional, very heavy leak environment. It's only been three weeks, but we get a lot of stories from, you know, intimate moments from behind the scenes from people who are there who are just freely have conversations with reporters, clearly, because it, it gets quoted uh, in national. I mean, yeah. says, nobody ever said anything about, you know, President Obama walking the halls of the, of the residents at 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night in his robe, just trying to figure out where the fuck he is. Because they all, <laughs> they all had a, a, a commitment to their administration. And I think yes. it goes above their and commitment to the Trump administration. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them admired Obama. You know, like, I don't think the people who work for Trump admire him. They see it as a great opportunity <laughs> to be in the White House, I'm sure. But, like, like him? As a person, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. Other, other than other than Omarosa. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are people there who like him. I'm sure. Yeah. But I think a lot of it just has to do with, like you said, they're, they're from the business world, and they, you know, they love a good opportunity. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm sure they're going to make plenty of money after this. You know, I was telling someone about uh, some of the pictures you might have seen of Obama as he left the White House. He was on vacation in Florida. You saw those? Yes, I have. Happy as a flop. He looks so happy. He does. And I was saying, like, you know, what might this be about? Like, one, I said, being president has to be the hardest job on, on the planet. It really does. But it has a really good retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you leave office, you get a big chunk of money for telling your story and writing your memoirs, which you got like twenty six million for. And your speaking fees are about half a million a month, you know, maybe. You know, you're making good money. <laughs> and obviously, President Obama is an excellent speaker. Anyone would pay shit tons of money to you know have him, but just having a president at your school to talk, they're going to pay a shit ton of money for that. Um, and then having having one that people like is even better. Exactly, people would actually it would elevate your university to have him show up. Most definitely. <laughs> so, both people are getting something out of this bargain. I'm just saying, it's not just because he's the former president. He's a popular former president, or I should say, president, because he'll always be president. <laughs> but either way, um, you're in, you're right. People, people love. I mean, just. I love seeing those pictures of him on vacation. Yeah, I do too. I, I've never seen him look that happy. Yeah. I think I saw a meme of that video and it, you know, had the titles like, My goal in life is to be half as happy as Obama looks in this picture. <laughs> it was like it was him like uh what was it, water skiing? You know? Uh no, water kiting. Oh. I forget what they call it. Oh yeah? Water. Okay, okay. <laughs> but he looked so happy. <laughs> It's true. I mean, it's, anyway. Like we talked about, towards the end, you can look on his face and see he was real over this shit. He was real sick of yeah. it. Michelle at the inauguration, she, like they said, she was doing her hair. She has stopped. I saw that. I saw a video last night with a woman talking about that. I was like, 
this is black girl. I don't give a fuck because she didn't <laughs> her hair. She didn't pull out no wig. She went in the bottom half of the closet, of the of the closet, of the drawer that don't nobody go into, and pulled out that tired ass ponytail that's not even faded with what looks like her actual hair. She gave no fucks. Yeah. yeah. They were sick of it. They were tired. You know, they knew that it was fucked up. They knew it was, Trump was going to be a hot bucket mess. If Hillary had won, I think they would have pulled this shit together. But they was like, man, fuck it. It's whatever. <laughs> Well, I did have one item left, and I want to introduce the check it out segment. So at the end, I like all the contributors to uh, give our viewers uh, something that they would recommend. It doesn't have to be a show. I usually do shows, but it can be anything in your life that has been bringing you joy, and you want to share it with others. But my last story is um, actually just about um, something horrible. So we're gonna need <laughs> we're gonna need some pick-me-up toward the end, so I hope you have something good. Uh, it's going to be about Dennis Hastert. I don't know if you remember. Uh, he's a former Speaker of the House. He's a Republican. Uh, Forty years ago, he was molesting kids. He was a wrestling coach, and he kept it under wraps throughout his career and his life. This happened 40 years ago, but I think it was about four years ago it came to light that, um, that he was paying hush money to one of his victims, and you know, um, I'm not exactly sure how that agreement came to be, but it had existed for decades, um, probably 25 years or so, that he's been pay, paying regularly large sums of money in the tens of thousands of dollars to one of his victims to keep his mouth shut about what happened. And through no fault of the victim or uh, Dennis Hester himself, the FBI caught on to some of the transactions that he was making with this person. And uh, they arrested him on bank fraud. And I think he was tried and convicted for that. But after he was arrested, uh, Dennis Haster stopped paying the money to the victim because it all went public and, you know, whatever. And so he sued the victim uh, who's named in the lawsuit, which I don't actually know his name because I think it's best not to publicize this person's name because... Uh, you know, the circumstances, but either way, he sued Dennis Hastert for the remainder of the money because they actually had a contract that he would be paid this amount of money. And his argument is basically, even though that we didn't do this through the court system, it was simply, you know, a non-disclosure agreement that any settlement out of court would be. It was legal, it was signed and notarized, it was in the right language, and he wants his money that he was promised because he didn't do anything to disclose this. This was the FBI, independent of him, that ended up, you know, blowing the whole thing. Um, and Dennis Hastert <laughs> is uh, suing back, basically saying he wants the money that he was extorted from this person back. Um, so, I mean, it can't be much more of a shit though. I know he didn't initiate the suit. It's a countersuit. But how can you... <laughs> sue the victim who you were paying off for the money that you gave them just because you got caught. Was the guy was the guy victim? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Lonnie. What you got re, you got re, victim. victim. Because most victims, I'm assuming if somebody molested if somebody molested me, there's no fucking way that you're gonna fucking pay for my fucking silence. No motherfucker. I want you to fucking suffer. So basically 
for $3.5 million. So basically he put a price on his, on his life. His, on his silence. Yeah. He's saying that this was the, the punishment that he sought after. Something don't sound right to me. Okay. Something yeah. Else. Well, there are lots of people though that take payoffs for things like that. Do. Did, you see, uh, did you see Queen Peter? I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> the payoff that she got was $3 million Something. in a non-disclosure agreement. Remember that? Xavier, chime in. It's a normal thing. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times that happens. Um, because okay, if I if I say you go to court, then what you did to me hasn't changed, and I don't get anything out of it. You just went to prison. If I sue you for your silence, then you are unassing ungodly amounts of money. I at least get that out of this, and then I can go get therapy or whatever else. And at the same time, I'm taken care of financially. If it was me and I would advise somebody, hell yeah. Sue they ass into destitution. I mean, it would come out of millions. If he got it, get it. And they'll pay it because they know the alternative is probably going to prison. And, you know, because you as a victim, you don't get shit if he goes to prison. The court isn't going to say, well, you deserve this or anything else like that. And you're going to have to pay for therapy out of your own pocket. And that's going to be years and years and years and years. And it's just no reason to just be a victim and then get raped at the same time. So you might as well get something out of this shit. I was going to say, it's, it's a common practice in lawsuits. A non-disclosure agreement and a payment for that yep. non-disclosure. When they don't feel like the case is strong enough or you won't be believed or you don't want to go through the court process for whatever reason... Settlements are reached and non-disclosure agreements are often upheld. The only problem with this one is that it was not done through the court system. It was done privately. It should also be noted that Dennis Haster is a lawyer. So I think he drew up the, the contract himself. So, anyway, any other thoughts on it? <laughs> and then I think we'll, we'll go into our um, check it out if you have anything this week. No, um, I'm just going to be looking for people who touch children should. Burn out. Yeah, I hope they force them to give them the money. I do. So I hope he wins his lawsuit. Anyway, moving on to our check it out segment. This is just for anything to bring joy into someone's life when all this bad news is out there. Um, does anyone have anything? Because I I don't really have. That much new, but um, you can again check me out. The website is fixed. You can check me out again on Poppy Chulo Radio, poppychuloradio.com, pop culture on demand. They will be moderating the Walking Dead show, I will be moderating the Legion show, and I am a regular contributor on the How to Get Away with Murder show. I'm sorry. How to Get Away with That's cool. Yeah, I forgot. Isn't The Walking Dead coming back tonight? It is coming back tonight. Oh, wow. I almost forgot. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'll say check it out. <laughs> I'll say check out. Yeah. Check out The Walking How do you feel about Legion? I haven't seen that yet. 
Um, I liked it. I liked it unlike all the other related properties that were done as movies. This was done as a television show because they will actually be get into the meat of it. Um, but I'm going to tell you that first episode is real trippy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw some of the promotions for it, and it definitely sparked my interest. Um, I might be able to check that out. Like I said, I've been kind of super busy. I've been um, catching up on This Is Us, which I already recommended more highly than I could. I'm going to wait till the end of the season and watch that. I was going to talk to you about that because it's a show that provokes a lot of emotions. And it's one of those shows I really do need a break. I've enjoyed watching one episode a night. Um, That's what I did this week, and I think I'm on episode eight. So, um, yeah, it's a nice little nightcap before I go to bed. Um, Yeah, and I'm not going to talk anymore about it. I'm on episode eight. It's phenomenal. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'm going to have to cram in The Walking Dead with that. And um, I don't know what else is coming up soon that one should check out. But, um, you know, I saw some of the promotions for uh, the new Iron Fist, the new Marvel show. It got me excited about that. And I don't know, if on the Super Bowl, you saw the ad for Stranger Things 2, which is uh, coming in Halloween, I believe. So that would be a nice little binge thing coming later. Um, I did have, like, an interesting little news story about the Super Bowl. So I'm just going to ask if uh, – who here got a chance to see the uh, halftime performance by Lady Gaga? No one? Yeah, Yeah. I saw it after the fact. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, it was a story about... I was going to the Super Bowl party. I was surrounded by gay men. (laughs) Well, there was a little introduction. You remember at the beginning where she, I think she said, saying, God bless America. And, um, she was standing on top of this tall tower, and you saw like these stars in the back, and they were like twinkling and stuff. Um, and then later, they were just talking about the technical aspects of putting the show together, which I thought was really well done, by the way. I, I enjoyed it. But those little lights in the sky were drones, which I didn't know. <laughs> They're little drones with little lights that flicker. And it's actually a common um, thing. I, they borrowed it from uh, the Disney uh, Epcot Center, I think it is, that they have these little drones. So I just thought it was kind of crazy. I haven't been to Epcot in a while, but apparently they have these light shows that are done at Epcot Center, not with fireworks, but with, you know, thousands of little drones with lights on them. <laughs> They're like, you know, really lightweight. Um, so, I mean, they do Disney, eventually fail Disney and fall. Does, Disney does a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about that story, which I, I definitely have to check out when it comes, is that they're redesigning Epcot Center to be Star Wars themed. So, you know, the big <laughs> Epcot ball is going to be the uh, the Death Star. And they're going to have little TIE Fighter drones circling it. <laughs> oh, that's and I, said, I know, right? <laughs> I said that. If you want to get kids interested in science, I definitely think that would get them like, how the fuck did they do that? Like, but apparently there's like a computer algorithm that you can plug in all these little drones and it just runs and they replace themselves because they have to be 
recharged every 20 minutes or so. But there's so many of them, they just go into the thing, charge up, and then go back out. Go back out. Yeah, you can keep this swarm of drones just circling the Death Star. I'm like, that's fucking awesome. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, that's cool. And they can do light shows with them and, you know. So, I mean, they used it at the Super Bowl, which I I didn't even know what that was. But these drones were hovering over the stadium because it's not a covered stadium. But little drones in the night sky, you can't see them until the lights come on. And they can make patterns and whatever look like fireworks. You can make them do anything. So that's why I check it out. Check out fucking Epcot Center, I guess. And the drones they used at the Super Bowl. Because that shit was cool and very nerdy and I loved it. So Fucking awesome, dude. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I just checked. We did get one comment from our friend and constant watcher, Nate J. Um, he said in other countries and this one and this in other countries and this one lifting your head to speak up will get your head chopped off. It's a little less likely in America today. The people coming here are choosing life. Okay, so we're going back to that. Back into my soapbox mode, I see. <laughs> to acknowledge his comment, since we have people Comment. I wanted to acknowledge. I just saw it. Yeah. I wanted to acknowledge. I still say, protest in your own country. Stand up for your. Is this what they did back in Japan? Well, I can't say Japan, but some other country. But some guy to some militaries and he laid down on the street and dared this this tank to run over him or something like that. That was, that was uh, the Yoshiman Square. So I mean. The best protest, I think, is to protest in your own country and with social media, have somebody with the camera, if you can, have somebody with the camera on FaceTime Live, videotape this. Well, we got Trump in office, so more than likely he won't get too fucking. <laughs> so I digress. I'm sorry. Come no, no, no. I actually, I actually no, agree with you. I think. You, know, in, uh, you know in South Korea, they don't have access to the internet like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, they- I was going to say, I agree with you in general. I just think you might want to learn more about some of these countries, in, in particular, you know, the ones that are on the travel ban, it, you know, yeah. to really understand where people are coming from. Because I, I just think that's where the disconnect is. I, I definitely mean, agree with you in general. I, I get it. Honestly, oh, okay. Where they don't have free elections. Truthfully, I get it. I understand. I mean, people in Jamaica, they get their head cut off. There, there was also a video on Facebook but somebody in Jamaica who was gay, he got killed on live or, or videotaped or whatever. I get it. I understand it. My only thing, what I was trying to say, maybe it's not correct for me to say, is that I think the best change can only come from when you're in your own country and you and other people band together to make a change in your own country. That's the only thing I'm trying to say, but maybe I'm wrong for having that idea or that thought process. That's what I agree I with you, dude. Before, I've told you before you were never wrong for your thoughts. I've told you that before. Uh, yeah. I'm, saying, I'm saying more than that. I'm saying I actually agree with you in general. I just don't think in specifically in these cases. And I think everyone has their own level of risk that they want to take. And, you know, yeah, I agree with you. Like, absolutely. It's Absolutely, the best way to to protest is within your own country. I do. Um, like he was in deep thought for a second. I, I he am. Was reading uh, something. 
it, but it's, it's something totally separate from our conversation. But I, I mean, but going back to what you all were saying, though, yeah, you, you I get the whole concept of protest. But like I said before, your protest isn't going to go very far if everybody, if you got the collective, and we both know we won't be able to the entire collective to agree to this. Say I'm gay and I'm proud, and you're in a Muslim nation, and you do that. I mean, they're gonna go chopping heads off, and just gonna be that. You know, it's gonna be the end of that protest. It'll be the protest of 2017. It came and gone. Um, yeah. So yeah, them fleeing to other countries, getting education, getting you know, getting building wealth, sending that back, going back themselves. And begin to working a system of destabilizing those types of thought processes and that type of government is what these people have commonly done, and I think that's your best out. Again, yeah. America got started due to religious persecution. People came over here to get away from the Catholic monarchy that existed um, in our in the government at that time, and so they yeah. came up, and so religious freedom and all that is what what's prompted us to come here and do what we did. I was going to say, we basically invented democratic republics. I mean, there was no such thing as that before the United States. Like, you got to give at least some props to that. (laughs) Like, it didn't exist. So, yeah, there is a unique place that America holds in those, you know, discussion about human rights and freedoms, even with our horrible history of slavery and, and Jim Crow. So, I don't know. It's a complicated thing. And so, I'm, you know, I don't think you can expect someone to agree wholeheartedly with every little thing you say about it. But, you know, in general, I do. And I actually enjoy the conversations, too, about it. So I also want to give a shout out to uh, Chris Impact Sutton, who is hosting the M3 Gaming podcast. Uh, I think he just posted another episode. Episode four is talking about Injustice 2 and I believe... Devon Branch, who was supposed to be on today. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> I was going to ask him to talk about it today. Um, was a is I think a regular panelist on there now. He's they had some scheduling issues with that, but there are four episodes. It's on SoundCloud. It's on iTunes. It's on YouTube. Uh, you know, check that out. And we will be back soon. I think Marcus on vacation in the mountains of Tennessee, but he will be back for the M3 Entertainment Hangout this Friday. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday to talk about all the news and uh, to get all of your opinions included. I really do appreciate everybody who joined us in the audience today. And to our panel, thank you very much for taking your time out of the day to to, uh, to talk about these things. So uh, we will see you next week. And thank you for watching. Aww, Peace. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the M3 Bear Essentials podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. And if you would like to get more content from M3, visit mailmediamind.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and many others. But most importantly, our link to YouTube, where you can subscribe and get a notification when we go live. There, you can participate in the Q&A and be a part of the conversation. Again, my name is Malcolm Travers, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.